Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont's schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy and nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today we spend the hour with Emily Bernard. She is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont and an acclaimed author. Her latest book of essays is Black is the Body, which was named a Best Book of 2019 by National Public Radio and received the Los Angeles Times Christopher Isherwood Prize for Autobiographical Prose. She has an essay in a recent edition of The New Yorker. Emily Bernard, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to talk about some of the, uh, start with some of the essays that you've been writing recently. Um, you had a recent essay in the in the Yale Review in which you write, uh, quote, in my neighborhood in Vermont, I am black, female, and alone. What has this meant uh, for you during this current moment of you know, nationwide protests and conversations around race and racism? Um, well, I think that, you know, Something I was I was very interested in exploring in the New Yorker essay was that distinction between inside and outside, and, and how elastic that is. That concept, you know, um, I live in a neighborhood that really, you know, does the work that the suburbs is supposed to do, which is to kind of keep you separate from, you know, create its own little um, oasis, and that provides a lot of security. Um, at the same time, you know, I feel very much a part of everything that's happening in this country, in the world as a black woman. Um, I feel the same vulnerabilities that people do, you know, in cities that I have never visited. But, you know, there's a kind of sense of um, coherence in black American experience, unfortunately, that is very much um, tied up with with racism and vulnerability rates of violence. So, I'm just feeling that very acutely. I don't think there's, I think it'd be very hard to find um, a black person in this country who's not feeling connected to the national incidents in a way that we've never felt before. Hmm. Um, 
you also you write about uh, a lot of the fault lines um, in our society. One of them is that between North and South, you grew up in the South and of course have lived for many years now in the Burlington area. Um, what don't Northerners get about Southerners? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, it's something I'm, I'm coming to understand as I get older is we have this, we, we function, I think, as a country with this lie that we are, are unified, that there is a United States of America. But I think, you know, living in the world and traveling reveals that that is simply not true. You know, we have radically different cultures, different idioms, um, different ideals that we hold dear. The thing about the South is that, you know, black and white people have always lived together in the South, you know, um, because of slavery. And black people are very much embedded in the region. You know, um, I think it's very difficult for us to extricate ourselves from from a Southern identity. And that's always been true. It's something that black writers have talked about. So, you know, it, it is a very, um, it's a complicated thing, I think, being a black Southerner and, and leaving which is something I always wanted to do, and I write about this in my book, to explore, you know, the world of New England that I fell in love with when I, and my reading as a child. And also just, you know, I dreamed, like other Black people before me, dreamed of finding more, you know, more tolerance and more freedom in the North, uh, that Lincoln Hughes called the North a colder mistress, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that there's a kind of vitality um, in the South, as, as oppressive as it is, there's the fact that black people have always have always lived in the South and, and black culture, our traditions, you know, have shaped Southern culture. So it's a it's a it's a really a double edged um double edged identity, you know, to be a black southerner is to be someone who is forged in the violence of that initial relation between black and white, but also uh to be a, a people who have thrived in spite of that violence at the same time. So as long as I live in New England, I think I can't ever really truly call it home because I don't look back to generations of ancestors who've lived here. You know, and I look back to my mother's family anyway, I see the South. It's right there. Um and the project for me over the years is going to to make peace with that identity that it really is part of me. There's no escape from it. There's no escape, you know, from that history for any of us in this country, you know, and I think we ignore um the ways that we are implicated in the history of American slavery, we ignore that at our peril. Well, you know, this is a moment when the past is very much present. Uh, We have the spectacle of President Trump, you know, uh, defending Confederate statues, talking about our, quote, culture and traditions and the importance of honoring them. I guess one of the things I'm getting at in that my question about what don't we get, you know, for a lot of us in the North, and I include myself in this, I'm seeing this, you know, the presence of this Confederate iconography and statues and uh, all over the South. And I have to confess, I did not realize this was everywhere. This is everywhere in the South. And, you know, I, I, I look at, you know, some of the thing, the images I'm seeing, and of course, with Trump exploiting these, you know, this divide, and and I just say, what what is going on here? What have I not 
known. So obviously this is not a surprise to you. Uh, what has it been like growing up under the shadow of statues of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and the like? Well, it's amazing what you can, you know, start to accept as normal. You know, when I remember growing up, um, and I think I learned about this in the book, you know, and there would be Klan rallies in Nashville. Not even rallies, just sort of the Klan, you know, walking down Main Street, you know, fully robed, and my mother telling us, you know, just roll up the windows. You know, that that was a constant uh, part of the, it was part of the atmosphere. You know, my mother who grew up in the Jim Crow South where, she was, you know, she really had no protection, you know, and then her mother before her and before her. Um, but that was part of the landscape, you know, this Confederate flag. It wasn't not something, you know, we questioned. I went to visit my aunt in Mississippi, you know, and the we walked to, um, you know, the Confederate flag, you know, is part of the um, state flag, you know, um, and emblems of the Confederacy are everywhere. So, you know, it's only in some ways stepping back and learning that history myself, you know, because you don't just know it, of course, by just being around it. And there's a there's a whole complicity in the public education system to keep keep us ignorant of the meaning and the important significance of these statues. So it's only actually with some distance and a lot of reading that I've come to understand what the statues have always been meant to do, which is, of course, to remind Black people of our place, as it, as it, as it, as it were. So it, it, it is something that I, do you live with that fear so much? It just becomes part of the way that you live in the South. And, you know, those unwritten codes of behavior um, were something that my parents, of course, had to, to instill in us, unfortunately, you know, not unlike the talk um, that we have to give Black children today about how to conduct themselves with the police. So it just, it's, it's, Become normal. It became normalized the way that we've all become acclimated to, um, you know, the the unceasing um, numbers of deaths of Black people by the hands of the police. You know, it, it, it didn't. We all know it didn't start with you know George Floyd, um, but we, we become acclimated, and we accept we have all accepted things. You know, not just black people in the South or white people in the South, but all of us in this country, we've accepted certain practices as normal. And that's why they've gone on for so long. What is it like for you to see these statues being pulled down? You're now, you know, a, a, a woman in middle age, as you describe, you spent your whole childhood barely seeing these things because it was normal. What's it feel like? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not, it doesn't, I'm watching, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, it doesn't, I, I'm watching it. it. It doesn't feel like anything right now. You know, I'm watching these things happen. We're all watching it, watching. The victory, of course, is not in the statue coming down. The victory will be, um, you know, whether or not we can change institutional practices, you know, whether what happens in November, um, whether or not we can really create new policies to protect people who have been um, thrown to the wolves, you know, really um, in the service of whatever kind of democracy we've been clinging to. So, um, you know, so I don't really feel much about it. Um, no, I have not been jubilant. I've been interested. I've been amazed. Um, I've been very moved when people, I think, who are much more cynical than I am and much more informed than I am, um, 
have expressed a lot of um, hope that that makes me hopeful. Um, but I think there's, these are spectacles, they're important spectacles, and my hat is off to every person who has put everything on the line to make sure those, those statues come down. But it can't, it doesn't end with statues, right? Um, there have to be some substantial changes um, so that so we can live live live, live, di- and live different lives. And I think that goes for all of us, you know, um, those who have perpetrated the violence and those of us who have accepted it. You know, we all have to have a shift in the way not only we think, but the way we act and behave. And you know, we're all starting at ground zero. So I am hopeful and I have seen things I never thought I would see. And I've had to then ask myself about all the things that I have accepted just to, you know, just to survive. But I don't think that we should, you know, um, rest. You know, it's the beginning. The statues are important. And I hope that it's the beginning of more substantial changes that won't be, that won't be as um, easy to celebrate because they don't make, you know, policy changes. Um, don't make for good photo ops, really. You know, people sitting in, in boardrooms and making, um, we have to be, be present for those kinds of changes, too. Um, we're, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, and we are spending the hour with Emily Bernard. She is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at UVM and an acclaimed author. Um, Emily, I want to turn to your book, Black is the Body. Um, can you first just tell us what is the meaning behind the title? Well, the title is the title of um, the an essay that kind of falls in the center of the book. And it's an essay I wrote about my daughters um, watching them. I talk about it as a moment when I literally kind of watched them kind of becoming Black. I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement, you know, but I watched them verbalize their understanding of where they fit into the kind of racial, um, you know, uh, landscape. You know, it was a day in February, literally they're watching a television show and a, you know, commercial came on and they were distinguishing for each other that what it meant to be Black as opposed to what it meant to be Brown. You know, Brown was how they saw themselves literally, but black they were understanding even at five or six years old as a kind of social and political category that had claimed them. And I will say that, you know, the the book was written. Of course, my daughters were really young um, when the book was finished. You know, they were, they were pretty young um, when I finished writing the essays. And as teenagers, they had become even more, you know, passionate about their place in the, you know, um, what it means to be black in, in this country in terms of the, and I tell you, it's still, it's, you know, when we talk about race, we automatically reduce the people that we're talking about, right? Um, we automatically reduce ourselves when we think of ourselves in um, these these categories, which are, have never been accurate, right? They, they've never been enough, and they are based themselves in racism. You know, a, category, a term like black um, is, you know, is race is a, a, a byproduct of racism. But my daughters have, as they're growing up, are deeply identified with the struggles of, you know, Black people in this country and all of the things that we'd like to celebrate uh, about ourselves. You know, um, my daughters are born in Ethiopia. They, you know, the, their passions, their things that make them individuals. They get flattened out, right, when we think about ourselves 
as as embodiments of these markers, you know, black, white, that's the cost. And as I watched them in the middle of this cultural uh, revolution, you know, talk about themselves as black people and uh, align themselves with a history that did not produce them. You know, they were not born here. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me how that, how that works and how important that is for them to adopt the political category of black, um, you know, because that's what the moment really ne- needs and what they need in this moment is to feel really affiliated. But of course, as their parent, uh, as, as their mother, you know, I really love all about the things about them that make them the individuals that they are, but, um, they are really attached to um, a larger identity that for them is more salient than the individual identities that, you know, make them individuals. You write, uh, at 14, my daughters have already experienced the painful effects of white supremacy. Uh, Explain what you mean. Um, Well, you know, they have... um, They've experienced it uh, in their classrooms. You know, this is not an uncommon experience for kids of color. You know, there are books and studies about what it means to be, um, and I'll talk specifically about black children growing up in predominantly white environments. You know, um, all of the things they have to to navigate from just, you know, um, simple lack of experience and ignorance to sometimes very deliberate attempt on the parts of peers to make them feel outside and alone and different. You know, my daughter was recounting a story to me last night about a kid who said to her, you know, you're different from the rest of us. You want to know why you're different? And really insisted and said, you know, because you're black. What motivated this kid to say this? I don't know. I don't know this kid. But I can tell you the effects of my daughter, the effects of my daughter, which remind her, of course, that she did not belong and that she did not fit in and that she was, you know, kind of hyper-visible in this way. And there've been some really painful things they've had to endure that have broken my heart as a parent, you know, that come part and parcel with you know, the kind of classic medical school experience that so many people are still, adults are still recovering from compounded by, you know, being black girls in a predominantly white environment and feeling really alone and unprotected and having, you know, the best, the most well-meaning teachers admit um, fault and say, you know, I, I just, I don't know how to handle the situation. I didn't know how to handle it when it came up into my classroom. My daughters are having to, to live with the consequences of that, of that lack of experience. So, you know, they are, they understand it. They understand, you know, it gives them a lot of relief. We talk a lot about it at home. They, it, it, it helps them to know that um, they're part of a phenomenon, you know, that these things have happened to them, not because of anything they have done wrong, um, but because, you know, this is about um, a learned experience and they're part of this, you know, continuum. Uh, and part of a phenomenon. So in some ways it gives them, I think, some relief to feel connected to other black people in this country. They don't even know, but they have contact with, you know, through social media, who, who they have support groups of kids who are going through the same thing. Um, so that's what racism does, of course. It, it flattens you out as an individual, right? No, you're not seen as a person. You're seen as, you know, a problem. Um, and that's what they have, have dealt with. And, you know, they have a parent who can tell them, well, this is something that, you know, people who, you know, wrote about this 100 years ago. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, this is still happening. But fortunately for you, there's a whole body of literature that you can find yourself in, people who've thought about this experience and had to contend with it. So they have been 
they have had to deal with this on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, again, they have the tools to talk back to it and to understand it, which I think, I think the education is, 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 is liberating. You uh, write in The New Yorker about uh, a restorative justice session that you arrange with a teacher. And it's a very remarkable exchange. I, I uh, was left feeling um, amazed at your daughter at, at a young age, being able to, uh, you know, be a partner in that session. Explain um, what brought it about. What is restorative justice and what came of it? Well, um, yeah, I, I won't. I, don't, I, I wrote about that. It was a kind of central piece in the, in the essay. Um, and it was a very painful experience for my daughter. Um, she, you know, found herself in a classroom with a teacher who just simply had no, no experience um, talking with his students about identity and race. I'll put it, I'll leave it there. And she found herself having to do the educating, um, but also suffering as a result of this young man's um, ignorance, to put it simply. And she was really suffering and, and you know, kind of mentally from it. She's a very strong person um, and very kind of thoughtful person, but she's also quite um, measured in her emotions. So it took me a while to understand that there was still some, even though we, we handled it in the, in, at the moment, and her teacher, you know, to his credit, was not an ounce defensive and readily admitted what he did in his own ignorance um, and, and wanted to repair harm. Some harm can't be repaired. Um, I hope that my daughter in years to come will remember that, um, that this teacher apologized to her. And as I said to her, you know, it's rare um, to have a person in, in authority uh, apologize so directly and without defensiveness. And, and to me, as a 52-year-old woman, that's valuable, you know. But I, as a 14-year-old girl, it's, it's not so valuable, you know. Um, I have 52 years of experience of watching that not happen. But she's only 14, and she's the one who suffered as a result of the situation. Um, so in order to help my daughter live and thrive in this uh, moment of quarantine, I asked her teacher to meet with her and to talk with her over, you know, we had a virtual session and asked him to listen to her as she explained the enduring harm that she's still dealing with. And, um, and he did. It, it was not a simple fix. But for me, it was about my child and making sure that she could um, look back in this moment and feel that we had some kind of closure for me, it's about wanting my kid to, to be able to move on, you know, and to sometimes, you know, explain to her, we don't always, you know, people can't undo things that they do, but, you know, sometimes repair is about talking back to something. And, um, and that's what she was able to do. But, you know, the experience left her feeling very isolated. You know, it's not, it's, she shouldn't have had to um, be the one to tell her teacher that, that he, he harmed her. She should have been protected um, she was not, but all we can do is, 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 you know, I think, uh, testify to our experiences and, and keep, and keep moving forward if we can. That is my own philosophy. Um, 
and try to make some meaning out of the painful things that we we go through. So um, the essay I wrote was in every way inspired by that experience, and she knew that I wanted to kind of write write through it and figure it out. And she was eager in some ways, in every way, to um, to be heard, to have her experience be something that uh, could be useful. I mean, the last thing she asked the teacher was, what's going to happen now? You know, she wanted to make sure that no other black children had to go through what she went through. And I really applaud her for that because I think it was very mature for a 14-year-old girl to say, okay, now you've apologized to me, um, but I want to make sure you're not going to do this again to someone else. And so we're still in pursuit of that. You know, we're very invested in our in, our, in the school system and our lives here. And my daughter is invested in, 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 in social justice. It's something that's become a very motivating um, cause for her, a motivating a kind of a way she, identity. You know, now she thinks of herself as someone who, that's who she is at the core, who is an advocate uh, for social justice. So we'll keep, you know, we'll keep moving in that direction. But um, she's actually going to be interviewed by Liz Gilbert on Instagram page, I think on the 30th of this month, about what happened in the New Yorker, in the essay that I described. Um, and we're at a moment where, you know, she's she's still figuring it out how what to do, you know, with that experience, um, how, to, how to carry it. But talking back to it, I think, has given her a sense of agency so that she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to feel victimized. She wants to feel mastery. And so telling the story and, and helping me tell it and use my platform to tell it was important for her. Hmm. Well, she sounds like an extraordinary young woman. Um, and, and while I'm sorry that she has to go through these things, and as a mother, it must be really hard, it's also remarkable uh, the grace and wisdom that she shows at her age in even confronting these things. I mean, those of us who are parents know that for teenagers, Oftentimes, a hurt is something you try and hide. Uh, so to actually want to restore some semblance of justice in this situation um, speaks volumes about her and uh, about her parents uh, in in accompanying her in that. Um, so it, it's, it's a remarkable thing to read about in your essay. Um, we are... Almost out of time uh, in the, our first segment here. We're going to take a short break for the news. And I promise we are going to talk about your book, uh, Black is the Body. I keep trying to get to it, but you keep um, raising all these other interesting issues that are <laughs> interesting to talk about as well. So um, you are listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're speaking with Professor Emily Bernard from University of Vermont. Um, we're going to take a short break for the news. And when we come back, We'll continue our conversation and talk more about her recent award-winning book, Black is the Body. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is brought to you by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, Green Mountain Power, Concept2, Norwich Solar Technologies, The Alchemist Brewery, Let's Grow Kids, UVM Medical Center, and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today we're spending the hour with Emily Bernard. She is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. 
Her latest book of essays is called Black is the Body, which was named a best book of 2019 by NPR, as well as others. And she has an essay in a recent edition of The New Yorker. If you want to join this conversation, you can give us a call at uh, 802-244-1777. Emily, your book, Black is the Body, begins, well, it kind of... uh, blows you right up against a wall because it begins with a horrific act of violence. You were stabbed in 2001. Uh, and you write in your book that, quote, in more than one way, that bizarre act of violence set me free. What do you mean by that? Well, actually, um, I was the stabbing happened in 1994. I was a graduate student at New Haven, and a man came in uh, who was a paranoid schizophrenic and was not on his medication at the time and misperceived um, that, you know, he misunderstood the scene as happens when you're mentally ill and felt that people were out to get him and trying to kill him. And so he felt he was defending himself and, uh, you know, a lot of things happening for him. Um, And I was one of the victims, one of the people he stabbed, none of us, None of us died. There were seven of us. We were in a coffee shop, and no one was prepared for this kind of event. I mean, this was 1994, before these things were happening every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm often thankful that he had a knife and not a gun, because obviously that would have been a different story and probably wouldn't be here. Um, and it was an instructive thing. I mean, it was horrible, and it has caused me a lot of, um, you know, I've had to go back to the hospital multiple times because of, adhesions in my, um, in my bowel, brought on by the surgery and just the excess of scar tissue. And I had to learn very early on to manage that pain. I mean, I haven't had, um, I spent years not knowing what the pain was when I would have these terrible uh, bouts of pain. Um, and then finally, um, it got so bad, I, I did have to go to the hospital and have more surgery. And the surgeon discovered that I had adhesions. Um, So I started talking about the stabbing the morning after the event. My mother had flown down to, flown from Nashville up to New Haven to be with me. And I remember in and out of a morphine haze, my mother, the surgeon telling my mother that because I was already talking about it, that it was a really good sign of healing. And even though I was sort of in and out of consciousness, I understood that something really meaningful was, had just, he said something really important that I I wanted to think about later when I could think. Um, And in many ways, it has become a touchstone for me as I've uh, developed as a writer. I've always returned to that early moment. Um, And it has solidified a belief that storytelling is a way of living, you know, and a way of coping, a way of addressing the hard things that happen and a way of inventing new worlds and practicing a kind of optimism and fighting back pessimism, pessimism, or at least contending with it. It all happens there in narrative for me. Um, And so it became a way of thinking about this book. And in fact, not long after I turned the book in, I had another bout of adhesions. It had been 10 years since I'd had the last one. And I really think on some level, I believed that I had written the whole experience experience out, out of my body because I hadn't I had get that. Okay. could you try this? I hadn't had a, a I hadn't had a bout in so many years um, 
but so it was another important lesson that the fight continues. You know, I think there's never a moment when you can, you know, say, well, it's over. I've figured everything out. I'm, you know, I win. We're constantly struggling with ourselves and our natures, you know, just the way that, you know, the, the kind of lie of, I mean, use a kind of banal, you know, the example of someone who thinks of themselves as being woke, you know, and being alive to the realities of injustice. It's a constant, you know, we have to fight complacency all the time. We have to stay alert and stay vigilant in our own lives as we, I think, hope to be better travelers on this planet. You know, it's, it's an everyday investment. Um, and that has proven itself to be true in my life over and over again through the experience of having to deal with these adhesions, the stabbing that has never left me alone since it happened to me all those years ago. I've had to, to factor it into my life as, as, as I have, you know, fought it um, and all of the, you know, kind of psychological consequences of that and try to make something meaningful out of it. You end that essay um, about uh, the stabbing uh, by quoting from a 2009 news article about the assailant in which he tells uh, a court He's been repeatedly deemed incompetent to stand trial, but he tells the court, um, I apologize to the court and to the people that were hurt. You don't, however, say whether you accept his apology, do you? Um, I, I, I guess I, you know, is that, is that meaningful? Um, he did his time. He um, got back on his medication I hope that he won't ever do that again. <laughs> um, I don't know him. I'm happy to be alive. I wish our paths had never crossed, but I don't know him personally at all. So I don't think that my forgiveness is a, is a factor here. Um, he, he did not kill anyone, and I'm glad that he did not. But I, I, I can't answer that question. I don't think it's I, – I, I don't know how to answer it. Mm. Um. I want to talk about another of the essays uh, entitled Teaching the N-Word, and you write about the extraordinarily complicated dynamics of teaching the N-Word, of students who don't want to say it, of you challenging them and their attitudes, and your ambivalence about the whole exercise. Why is it important to you to teach the N-Word? Oh, um, well, the, the title of the essay is teaching and word and honestly it wasn't the title was not my choice but <laughs> it was just sort of a um, you know a compromise with my editor um, I don't teach the n-word um, I wrote that essay I think in 2004 or I started writing it in 2003 or four um, and I wrote it because it comes up so often you know in the courses I teach. I teach African-American literature for the most part. And you know, writers are constantly dealing with that word, what it means, what it symbolizes. Um, there's a great book by the journalist Jabari Asim um, that actually uses that word and all of the legislation, who can say it, how it comes up in, you know, court documents and, and you know, in, in news reports. It's a it's a disturbing and fascinating um, argument that the word is actually really central. He traces the, the evolution of the republic through that word. Um, so it's really central 
in this in this culture, and it symbolizes so much of race relations. So it's it's inevitable that it comes up in the classroom. And I was very intrigued. Um, I wrote it kind of in real time. I was teaching a group of ten students. There were white students in an African American autobiography class, and I was interested in that invisible line between. You know, teacher and student, and we were very close to the unit. They were exceptional kids and close to many of them still. I mean, I think I hear regularly from seven or eight of them, um, and, you know, all these years later, somewhat regularly. So um, we became very close, but there was this unspoken fact, which was that I was the only black person in the room, and I was their teacher. So the, the essay was an occasion to think about pedagogy and my own beliefs about maintaining that line between teacher and student and how writing um, actually, as a way of testing that line, um, I was able to to be in a way in that essay that I am not in person with my students. I tend to my students know this. I tend to be pretty formal in my way of teaching. I have them call me professor. Um, I tell them why I do that. I write about that in the essay. Mm-hmm. And but in the in, on paper when I'm writing creatively, I can I can wander. I can take risks. I can take detours. You know, when you're teaching, really, I think uh, African American literature, as I do uh, at a PWI or predominantly white institution, a lot of kids who don't have, because of our, you know, way education works in this country, most of my students don't have a lot of experience with African American literature across the board. So I'm starting, you know, at zero and trying to get us somewhere. Teaching is a very linear practice, at least the way I, you know, uh, the way I teach. You know, you start here and often it's chronological and they get you here you know, by the end of the semester, but I, the space of the page for me is I can, I can, I can wander, as I said, I can wander and I can double back and contradict myself and ask questions about those contradictions. So I wanted to write an essay that would address the way the word circulates in our culture that wouldn't be a lecture. You know, I've had people ask me, you know, point blank, should I say it? Should I not say it? What do you think about it? And I, that's not what the essay is for, you know, and I know that it, it um, it's a question people want simple answers to, but there are no simple answers. Um, I wrote that essay to enter into a conversation about the word. I mean, I have feelings about it. My students and I talk about it. A lot of my feelings are, are generational. You know, they have to do with when I was raised and how I was raised, and I'm sure they're regional and, and have to do with gender and, and so many other issues. Um, I was on a great Zoom call the other night or a book group with a, a, a group of young um, black people in Boston, um, and we had a talk about it, and they were, as I said, they were all um, young black people, and they had a diversity of opinion, even within that, that group, there was a diversity of opinion about that word, and who should say it, who should, how it circulates, how it functions, and I, I love that, I think that, you know, language should be complex, and it should be, should make us think, you know, we should push those those boundaries, um, but I do have, I have have changed my thinking or my practices a lot since I wrote that essay. I have, in the past, you know, one of my first great loves was a man called Carl Van Becken, who was born in 1880, died in 18, 1960, a white man who was an important figure in the Harlem Renaissance and a controversial figure. Um, and he used that word in the title of a book, in his most popular novel. And I've given presentations on that book. And I, there's no way that I would, I would, um, give a presentation now where I would just sort of read that title out loud. And I, this is not to say that, you know, I know people who do and, and I understand that, but I don't see any reason to 
um, articulate a word that's going to cause people pain. And I think that has a lot to do with my age now and maybe having children and having, you know, feeling very much like an elder. But when I'm in situations where I know that that word, the articulation of that word is going to cause people pain, I don't see any reason why um, to do that. It is a choice that I have made. And that's something that's changed actually since the writing of that essay. Um, it's probably an essay I wouldn't read aloud in a public forum. You know, I think a lot about the writing I do. It's a very intimate, you know, experience for me as a as a writer, and I want it to be that way for the reader, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I write for that person who's wanting, wanting that intimate experience, you know, on paper with someone else's life um, and ideas. But in public, I've been in public forums where people have used the word, and it has just caused pain. And there's no, I don't want to add pain to the world. It's not my objective. Right. So, yeah, well, you know, this comes down to that. Just picking up on, on the theme of the intimacy of your writing, your family, uh, your daughters, uh, your husband, John Gennari, who is also a colleague of yours in the English department at UVM, are the material for much of your writing. Um, how do they feel about living their life in this fishbowl, knowing that any conversation can end up uh, as an essay uh, by you? Um, I think that's a really, you know, that's a question that they would have to answer for themselves. And in fact, I have an essay called, um, but what will your daughters think? Um, that addresses this very issue. And especially as it, I think it pertains, you know, sometimes to women and, and being asked what our, our families will think, our children will think when we write about certain subjects. Um, I think that it is complicated. And as they get older, you know, my family, we're, they're part of every discussion we have about what, what leaves my, you know, you know, my computer screen and goes out into the world. You know, I would never publish anything without their permission. But my husband and children know exactly who I am. And they understand that there's a, an important distinction between what happens on the page and what happens in our real lives, you know, um, when my daughter was very young, Isabella, I asked her, you know, I asked her this question and she was probably, you know, single digits, maybe eight years old. And I said, what, is it, what does it feel like, you know, to, to read about yourself and to know that I'm writing about you? And she said, well, it's not us. These are stories about us, but it's not us. And that was a kind of, if I can say something to myself about my own daughters, you know, pretty profound distinction, you know, understanding that there, there is, there's a huge invisible chasm between you know, the real life person and the stories that my interactions with this person, you know, with, with the stories that, that are generated by those interactions. My daughters understand that, um, you know, the writing I do is not simply, it's, it's trying to be about something else, not just replicating what they say, but about a greater utility and about, again, freeing someone else. You know, it's a question my daughter asks, like, what happens now? Now that I've told my story, is this going to have any greater utility? Um, and I know that's why I, I do the writing I do. You know, to me, it's only useful if someone else can be liberated and if somebody else can be relieved of suffering and shame. And, you know, for as much as I say, there are, I, I am fiercely protective of my family um, and also fiercely grateful that they do allow me to, you know, explore the discussions we have, uh, the ways we operate together. Uh, you know, they know that it's part of who I, who I am and how I live in the world. But they also, as I said, they understand that distinction between the story and the essay 
and the story and the lives that we are living. You know, I think it's some ways just like living with a method actor. You know, <laughs> they know that when I'm getting into the story, that's what that's what's happening. But it's not that's not mommy. You know, that's on the page. That's that's the writer and that's the persona. So they've grown up with it, and that's what I think that they might tell you. But they essay. I ask them directly. You know, because someone asked me, and I quote from them, and I let them speak. Um, but what will your daughters think? But you know, I think it's it's got to be uncomfortable sometimes. And you know, we've negotiated. Uh, about this, you know, many down to details. Um, but in the end, if I think, if I think a representation has a larger useful meaning, um, you know, then I'll, 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 t- I'll tell them that. And, and, you know, but, but typically when they ask me not to, to, um, to publish something or to write about something, I don't do it, but that happens very rarely. I, in fact, I can only think of one instance when, um, you know, when, when my da- daughter, one of my daughters asked me not to, not to publish Actually, she didn't ask me not to publish. She asked me not to read aloud um, a scene, and I won't say what it is, um, that she felt portrayed her in a negative light, but I thought portrayed my, me in worse light. <laughs> you know, I thought she was behaving really appropriately as a teenager, and I knew that people would understand that. Um, what was, but, but what was the was conversation her. like about uh, with your daughter about writing in The New Yorker about this uh, restorative justice session with the teacher? That was really a very intimate description of a very, very difficult conversation. How did you and your daughter decide to do that? And what were her feelings at, at first? Well, um, you know, for my daughter, again, the question was what what to do with that pain that she experienced, you know. Um, and, for you know, for everything that you read in the New Yorker piece, it was 10 times harder you know, than what was represented. Um, but the question, again, what to do with this pain? To stay silent about it, um, you know, keep it internal, um, or to translate it into something that could be useful and meaningful for her? Um, that was the question we, we were facing. I mean, you know, there were months between the, um, you know, when the incident happened and we had the various events I described, when, you know, she tried kind of keeping it buried. Um, and it did no good for her. You know, it did no good for her to stay silent. In fact, it kind of reified the experience, you know, so it, was, it became defining. She didn't want that. You know, for her, you know, entering it into kind of public discourse was about freeing herself and saying, the story does not make me. It is just a story, you know. I'm not going to keep it hidden in my heart and have it cause me shame. I'm going to see if it has any usefulness. I mean, as I said, her, her desire was to make sure that the situation didn't happen for, to, um, to anyone else. And so to be really frank with you, for her, um, she was happy. She wanted to have as big of a, um, to, to be as, have big of a platform as it could have, have had. I mean, we even talked about that, where it should be published. You know, we talked about should it be, you know, something that would go out in a, you know, a smaller literary journal. Or should it be something that would, you know, appear on the New Yorker or something like that that would attract a lot of readers? And for her, hands down, um, you know, she's proud of herself and who she was in that piece. And she wanted it to be known that this is who she is. So, you know, the little girl that, that or not, I shouldn't say little girl, but the, you know, the, the 14-year-old um, who is so strong is somebody who's proud of her strength. And, you know, for her, that piece represents some a triumph, you know, over a situation that it could could have muted her. Uh, so, 
you know, a lot of a lot of conversations around it about about down to where it, where it would be published, you know. Um, but she had complete oversight, and the New Yorker, you know, does not kid around when it comes to fact checking. I think fact checker called her and made sure every line, every move, and she, you know, down to um, work with them. That you know, I had a scene where she had her head down the, on the desk because I was sitting next to her at what I thought I saw. But she told the fact checker, and it was amazing to see it in the margins. You know, Julie says her head wasn't actually touching the desk, but it was <laughs> down. Uh, she was really wanting to make sure it was absolutely accurate. Um, but you know, it's it's all a work in progress. You know, um, you know, maybe in years to come, she'll tell me that you know something else. But we did what we did now in the service of her her liberation. You know, so that she could feel like this 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 experience at school that was so alienating for her and and diminishing. We turned it into something that made her larger than life. You know, that was that was the objective. We we she made felt small and minimal. Right? She felt powerless. And she wanted to um, feel her power. And that's the least I could do as her parent, you know, as a writer. It's something I could do in this moment was to give her a platform so that she could feel powerful and that she's the one who owns the experience. We're living in uh, in this remarkable moment where, uh, you know, for really much of the things you teach about and write about, race and racism and social justice are, you know, are playing out in the streets in uh, in very dramatic fashion. Where do you hope, or what do you hope will come of this national dialogue around racism? Well, I hope we move past, I mean, I, I hope that, that awareness, this awareness um, sticks, you know, I dare hope. I think there are indications that it will. I think people are fed up. I think there was a kind of, you know, perfect storm of, you know, and we can, you know, all the factors, um, so many factors. I, I hope that it goes beyond, I hope it it becomes more than just dialogue. You know, I hope we see some real action. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm cautiously hopeful. I don't think there's any reason not to be, um, to not believe that we're on the road to something new, but we have to, we all have to stay, stay vigilant. Um, this has to be the beginning. You know, it's not just a, a moment. It has to be a forever kind of thing, I think, if we're really committed to change. But we've all been surprised, you know, in the last, within the last, um, you know, how many years? Um, four years. We've seen some things happen we never thought would happen every day. So I'm, you know, aware that that can happen again. We've, we've, but because we have, we have seen some of the worst things play out, there's no reason to believe that um, we can't make change. I mean, ultimately, I have to believe that if I'm going to live in this world, that change is possible. I've been changed. You know, I was my daughters who are trans rights activists. I mean, you know, my daughter Isabella, she she is central to her being. You know, um, and she's thinking of herself as an activist, and she is. She will. She told. She has. We lived in an incident of walking out of a room, a classroom, because a, a peer said something that she, that was, you know, very um, obviously transphobic. And, and I think about her passion and I think about myself as 14 year old who had nothing like her political sophistication, you know, growing up in, deep in the Bible Belt in the South. I, I mean, it amazes me, you know, this, gener- uh, this generation coming up and all the things they know and all, all of their clarity about justice and fairness. Um, 
you know, well, we're, we're going to have to leave it there, Emily, and uh, maybe that's okay. a fitting place to end with the fierceness of your daughter's commitments. Um, uh, Emily Bernard, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David, for having uh, me. I appreciate it. Emily Bernard is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont and the author of the book of essays, Black is the Body. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vermontconversation.com. Tune in next Wednesday at 1 for another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. The Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable child care in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit.